I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. This podcast is supported in part by the Bertha Foundation. Hi, Julia Zamiro here. I'm recording this podcast on the land of the Gundungurra people. Sovereignty was never ceded. We need a treaty. Let's start the podcast. A podcast about politics for people who hate politics. Yeah. This is Julia Zamiro Asks Who Cares. Well, hello, everyone. 2022, can you believe it? Welcome back to Julia Zamiro Asks Who Cares? And you know what? It turns out quite a lot of people do. Today, I'm talking to two incredible artists who care, create, and want others to experience that creativity too. They're both musicians, Jen Kloa and Astrid Jurgensen, the creator and conductor of Pub Choir. But first up, Jen Kloa, Napui and Nati Kahu. Their most recent self-titled album debuted at number five on the ARIA charts and received rave reviews, and they were crowned Double J's Australian Artist of the Year. Now, on top of that, Jen is a co-founder of the independent Melbourne label Milk Records and created I Manage My Music, a masterclass series for self-managed artists, just to get them on top of what it means to run your own business in music. We talk acting schools, impressing your heroes, all the training and belief that goes into being an artist, longevity, and why, more than ever, we need culture to turn to. It's so good to see you. So good to see you. Like, truly. I mean, one of the joys of Rockwiz has been to have these incredible musicians just just a, a handspan away from me on stage, and you've given me some of the best moments in my performing life, Jane Cloa. Oh, that is so sweet. That really actually means a lot because I know you've seen many people come through the hallowed halls. And what people might not know is um, my thrill too when Jen was on the desk. 
answering questions. Uh, gee, she knew her stuff. Um, <laughs> is that, of course, you do a little biog and you'd been an acting student. You'd gone through NIDA and I was fascinated that there was someone who had trained as an actor and then had become a musician. And I just think it's an excellent thing and I know you didn't have a fabulous time there. Not everyone has a fabulous time at acting school. I did. I did have a good time at acting school. But I do think that there are things you can learn at those places that are about asking yourself questions about who you are and how you move through the world? Absolutely. I mean, I think if anything, what acting, what acting school did you go to? Did you go to Whopper? VCA. VCA, of course. What I love is you've said Whopper because you're obviously assuming I sing. Well, I don't. Uh, but, yeah, VCA. <laughs> I, I, I was like, where'd you go? I mean, I auditioned for NIDA too <laughs> and, um, you know, I got through, um, I mean, in case people don't realise, you know, you audition and then you might get through to the afternoon where you'll do a, your third piece because you've done your first two in the morning. And I'd got through to the afternoon and I was convinced I was in. I mean, the process isn't finished. And then you have to go back the next week and I didn't get in. And... There you are. Tried again the following year, didn't even get through the afternoon, but by then thought, oh, I'll audition for VCA. And I was so delighted by the audition process at VCA. I was so hooked. I thought, oh, no, now I really want this. And then when uh, I got in, I was pretty, pretty excited. And it turned out to be a, 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 good, a good time, a good, I, fig- I figure, I feel like I learned how to learn there. Beautiful. Mm. Yeah, I think like it taught me a lot about the industry, maybe more so than about who I am. Really? I think in some ways, I think in some ways I wasn't ready for that mm. school. And I didn't have enough understanding of who I was. And so it really threw me. Mm. You know, it threw me. When I was at NIDA, there was the head of acting was a man called Kevin Jackson. Mm. KJ, as we affectionately called him, and he was actually incredibly well read and was like a kind of dramaturg style kind of actor. And he just knew so much about playwriting and playwrights and was one of those people that was like, include the commas, um, don't add words, respect the text, you know, the writer's intention, loved Chekhov, you know, one of those Mm. guys. And um, I, I sort of like at that. I was only nineteen. I kind oh, of wow. went, I was so very young. young. I parentified. Yeah. I sort of parentified some of the teaching staff there, and I kind of looked up to him as like this scary dad, and I wanted to impress him. And their whole kind of thing there is sort of seeing what you're good at, and then making you do the stuff you're not good at. So they kept throwing me into like white gowns and making me have these romantic scenes with men and be all gushy and cry and, you know, like just not my strength. And Mm. I felt kind of almost like I was in drag. That's how far away it felt from my experience. Like like I was like dressing up in drag (laughs) and trying to do this thing. Anyway, he gave me this scene and it like broke me and I just got this massive resentment against him. And I remember sort of at the end of, I think it was the end of first year, he said, you know, you won't, you don't, you won't even look at me in the eyes when you walk down the hallway. And I was like, and like that's how much shame I was carrying around not being good enough for Kevin Jackson. Anyway, I think it was three years ago, four years ago, 
I'm performing at the Lansdowne Hotel upstairs. They had this band room. I think they've closed now, which is very sad. And it was with my band, Courtney on guitar, Bones on bass, Shalaki on drums, amazing band. We'd just been touring all around the world. So we were like on fire. Yay! And we went out and we just, we had two nights at the Lansdowne, nice little room, packed, great energy, absolutely blazed, felt amazing, came off stage. And then someone came to the door, I think one of the merch, cute merch crew, and they were like, oh, there's a, there's a man here called Kevin who wants to say hello. And I was like, I don't know, Kevin. Okay, Kevin. <laughs> who the hell is Kevin? Anyway, this, this elderly man, elderly, like early 70s I would say now, yeah. comes to the door and it's Kevin Jackson. Oh, my God. My acting teacher. And he'd come along with a couple of friends who, who were like, we're going to go and see Jen Cloa. We've got an extra ticket. And he was like, yeah, absolutely. I'll come and see Jen Cloa. And he was just like lit up. He was like, that was incredible. I loved that performance, like blown away, mm. right? But here's the great bit. The next, I think it was like two days later, I saw this Google alert come up in my mail because I have a Google alert on my name, mm. you know, like to know what's being written about me out there. 100%. 100%. And there was, he, he has this website where he reviews like Sydney Theatre Company, da, 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 da. And they're amazing reviews. They're not like some weirdo that's just writing some, you know what I mean? Mm. Like they're really great reviews, but they're not for you know, for the media. Mm. It's his own passion project, but people read them. Mm. You know, people who know read them. And he'd reviewed my gig. <gasps> oh, my God. <laughs> like he'd never reviewed any music show ever. It was like wow. strictly theatre. And he had reviewed my gig as though it were a theatre piece. <gasps> and he was talking about, like, how I embodied things mm. and, you know, like my strength and blah, 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 and how Courtney was writhing with the guitar. You know, like it was like mm. the most incredible review and he loved it. And it was so beautiful and healing for me because if mm. there was one thing that KJ said that stuck with me from 25 years ago whenever I was there, he was like, you know, your whole role as an artist is to create a body of work. That is what you will be remembered for, oh. a body of work. And it, it, it occurred to me uh, after re reading this review that he had finally come to see me as an artist that went on to create a body of work. You know, I was presenting my fourth album at that time and, and I had stayed consistently with my practice. And it was just like the most beautiful kind of full circle experience to have. And, and of course, you have it when I, I would no longer care less what Kevin Jackson would think of me. Yeah. But to have that kind of reflected back, I think they're, they're just those milestones in your life as a performer. Uh, that's made me a little bit teary because I think too, you know, we're talking about what our significance is in society as people who make 
And when I say the word art, don't run away, don't switch off. Art is lots of things. It's music, it's theatre, it's it's cheap theatre down the road in a pub, it's expensive theatre that a lot of people can't afford and they could possibly make that cheaper. It's opera, it's dance, it's DJing, it's it's every it's everything that is makeable that you make to watch performance. So when we say art, but when people say you love what you do, you, you're privileged to go and do it. You go, well, it can also be a calling and if you are good at it and you love what you do, well, why wouldn't you stay with this thing that is bringing you real-life experience and making you kind of turned on so I can turn you on and, and do something for you to forget your day or to give you something else to think about or to discover something about yourself. I feel like post-COVID, what's going to happen next? We didn't get, in general, artists didn't get JobKeeper. What are we going to do next? Like how do we, I'm, I'm now, what's the point of making anything if people don't value it? And I mean from a government level to a crowd level. You know, something that I observed throughout COVID, you know, in my industry, which is the music industry, you know, there's younger artists in my sphere, some of whom I've mentored or worked with either from a business angle or from helping produce their music or whatever whatever they kind of come to me to assist with. And I, I produced an album with Alice Skye, an amazing songwriter, Wagaya Wamba Wamba Woman from Horsham in, in Victoria. And also there's a, another great band called Cable Ties, a punk band, and also Hachiku, which is Arnika Ostendorf, which is a band on Milk Records. And they're all kind of around a similar age on that sort of second, you know, about to launch their second album, had like lined up labels overseas, booking agents overseas, Mm. going to South by Southwest. You know, it was, and it takes many, many, many years to get to that place where you are ready to launch your music into the world and they're all you know like world-class artists and then I just saw everything just collapse and keep collapsing and remember when we thought COVID was going to go like we're like oh we should probably be back out touring by like July August like when we thought it was going to go for three months yeah and that was a long time yeah I know I know (laughs) so that was kind of you know And they've lost their window there, haven't they? That's like this incredible window. They've lost this opportunity and all of the money and the support and the time and the planning that goes into that moment. Mm. And to build that back up again Mm. is the thing that I think I have concerns about is that you kind of lose these young artists energetically and financially Mm because of what they've had to go through and the mental, you know, like Mm. it was a really, really, really hard time. And I think, you know, most people probably wouldn't know about it because, you know, Mm. you probably don't have mates that are touring around in bands for the main part, right? Mm. You know, Yeah. When you know that whole sections of people, certainly in the arts industry, who have had to give it up and get another job completely, two years, I mean, you just can't get by. And even with all the pleading that we did, because that's what we have to always do is plead, when we, you know, appealed to the government and said, you know, with a flick of a pen, you genuinely could just change this. <laughs> you could just go, oh, my gosh, artists, oh, whatever. Yes, all right, you get it too. 
that didn't happen either. And um, you have to. And I have theories as to why. Oh, great. Please that's, begin. That's, well, that's, it's no mistake. That is, that is a planned, that is, that is, you know, you make decisions about who you're going to fund and who you're not going to fund. And, and as you said, there's a flick of a pen. And I think that, you know, mm. artists are the enemy. Because yeah. we speak, we speak truth to power, and to have to give those people a voice is threatening. Mm-hmm. And you might be like, "Oh, get off it!" Like as if. But no, I really believe that we we have an immense power. We have an we have immense reach. We have audiences. We're influencers. You yeah. know, whatever that yeah. is these days. Politics and politicians, particularly the current government, are, are totally scared of us. It is not an industry they want to fund. You know, you think of like anthems like Yothu Yindi's Treaty, mm. you know, or Ruby Hunter's Down City Streets or uh, Cold Chisel's Flame Trees mm. or In Excess Need You Tonight or what's that great In Excess one that's like, Dun, 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 We can live for a thousand years. Like who hasn't drunk danced to that and cried in their lounge room at some point in their life? Like we shape culture. We shape culture through emotional connection and that's what they're scared of. Because when an artist stands up on a stage, we invite everyone in that room to tap into what it is to be human, mm. which is something politicians are not capable of doing because they're not connected. Mm. They've got their own agenda. They're not there to bring us together. I think that the mystery and appreciation of culture is led by our, our cultural leaders and, and our politicians. And, you know, you were speaking before about how artists are viewed in France, and you often hear Australian artists coming home and saying, oh, you know, touring through Europe was amazing. We'd get to the venue, there'd be home-cooked food for sound check. You'd play a show, you'd have a meal, like it was an endless stream of good alcohol, but no-one got really smashed and, um, you know, we were really taken care of. Mm. And I think that, that that's embedded in culture because of the way that culture is viewed. And I think the thing that we need to remember is, and I think this is really, these are big conversations, mm. but, you know, it, it needs to come from our leaders because we have, you know, we're, it's a colonised nation state. Um, we colonised here 234 years ago. There was an already existing culture um, that we basically built structures that they could not could not access Mm. Um, and you know all of the things that went around land stealing you know murder let's just call it what it was what was really happening yes and the issue that I think we have that's very different to France where you have Moliere and the French Impressionists mm. and centuries of culture embedded into the very fabric of existence. That's what culture is. We shouldn't call it arts. It's culture. Yeah. 
because we have come from so many different places all around this world and some of us have come with culture but many of us have forgotten what that culture was mm. we've had to assimilate you know like mm. a lot of migrants were encouraged to assimilate whatever mm. that means mm. um, we've given up identities to become white mm. there's many things that have happened and what we find ourselves in is is you know this so-called multicultural country but actually a lot of people don't know their culture or where they've come from and so the actual kind of colonized version of culture here is 200 years old and mm. it doesn't what whatever was it mm. you know it's not like we know you know like as as british people back you know, back in the empire, no Shakespeare and the Bard and, yes. you know, mm. there's this Wordsworth and, you know, there's a sense of who we are as a people and we have marmalade and who are Australians actually as a people? Mm. Like when you kind of break it down, it's like, is it a barbecue? Mm. What, what are we? You know, and I think until we actually ask those questions and kind of like, maybe realise that we don't quite know who mm. we are culturally, mm. we sort of don't value it. But this is the beautiful thing is I really believe each and every person has the ability, unless they were adopted and they don't know who their birth parents are, and my heart is heavy for those people, mm has not just the ability but the privilege to find out who they are and where they came from. And here's the other really interesting thing. Do you know what, guess a couple of languages in the world that are teetering on the edge of extinction? Well, most of Indigenous languages, I would assume. Bang on. Do you know which ones they are? No. Celtic and Gaelic. What? And I would say the majority of white Australians in this mm. in this country hail from either Celtic or Gaelic roots in some capacity. Mm. And I just sort of think, like, you actually have the opportunity to go and connect with a language that your ancestors once spoke mm. and find out through Ancestry.com Email that relative in, I don't know, some remote part of Ireland. Like go and do mm. some work to find out who you are and where you came from and know something about your culture mm. and how you came to be here. And if you were settlers and if you were colonisers and there's a dark past, that's okay. Mm. You know, you didn't make it happen, but you are responsible for the future. Mm. you get to determine that future and I really, really wholeheartedly believe that everyone has the opportunity to reclaim who they are because I don't actually believe, first of all, that Australia exists. It's a, it's a concept because mm. there was already a country mm. here, much like Europe, you know, full of different nations. I don't think French and Italian people see themselves as the same people and neither did the 500-plus no. language groups that we hear on this country. Absolutely. But I think that the issue that we have is that we've tried to make up 
a culture that never existed. Mm. And that's not to say that there isn't a making and weaving of that culture, but unless we know where we came from and who our people were, Mm. how can we create anything that we feel connected to? And the reason I've been learning Te Reo Māori and, you know, involving myself and taking part in cultural practice, which is available to me here in Nam in Melbourne, is because the more that I know who I am and how I am connected and the line of amazing people that I have come through and their connection to land, Mm. the more I care, Mm. the more I care about you, the more I care about the river down the end of the street, the Meri, Meri Meri Creek, the more I care about community. Mm. You know, it stops just being about me. My great-great-grandmother, Marara Tupe, would have only have spoken Te Reo Māori mm. and she was born in 1860. My, great, my great-grandmother, Puriata Puata, uh, who was born in 1890, would have spoken um, Te Reo Māori at home and English out in the world. And my mother, Dorothy Ehrlich Cloer, um, who was born in 1930, only spoke English. Mm. So that's how quickly that's how fast. those things move just in, you know, Indigenous people living, you know, in a colonised nation. Mm. But you think about you come from another country, you land here, and I can identify with that. I'm like, I kind of woke up one day, Julia, and went, I don't know who I am. Mm. I was sitting making a record with an Indigenous woman, Alice Skye, who owned it. And it occurred to me, I was like, I've come through a whole lot of Indigenous women and I've never, I've never felt, I just didn't feel like I, I thought I had to earn it or something. Like I didn't have any right to claim my bloodline. And I had sort of a lot of shame around not knowing the language or not knowing the culture. But to end my little rant, this is, I think, the the greatest and deepest healing is not to go and learn all about Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. That's great. Absolutely respect their culture. Take an interest. Go and find out who you are. Mm. That's That's where the connection begins because until we know who we are, we'll never know anyone else in the way that they need to be known and seen. But you're someone who's always been very inquisitive. That's why I like talking to you. You're someone who really is curious. And another thing you were curious about, as you are with this now, is at one point you asked yourself as an independent musician, how in the world are other people doing this? How are they getting by? And this ties into this idea too of, you know, is artistry, is music, is theatre important in a society because, you know what, it's not an easy life to start off with. Even if you've been to a drama school, there's no guarantee you'll get work when you get out. And with musicians sort of finding their way, you observed your own practice and you were thinking, this is hard. Is it hard for anybody else? And you started a management course, if you like, um, and I love that it's called "I Manage My Music." There's no, <laughs> there's no, um, you won't get it. You won't, there's no confusion around it. It's "I Manage My Music." In a nutshell, you know, how did that come about? And I, and just briefly tell us, you know, I love how you approach it too. How the first day is a little bit tough. I started those workshops because I was struggling. I was in debt. I had just released my second album. It hadn't had the same fanfare as my first album in that it hadn't had a whole lot of airplay on Triple J. Um, 
And I had just assumed a bunch of things that like, oh, sweet, you know, I'll just go here and there'll be people there and, you know, not the case, you know, like that national broadcaster had a huge um, effect as far as bringing people into rooms on my first album. And then when they didn't get behind the second album in the same way, Mm. um, what I quickly discovered was, you know, rooms were half full. And it wasn't because my band was any worse or that the music wasn't any good. I think it was really just a wake-up call Mm. that, you know, unless you have certain people or things, you know, in your court, it's really hard work. Mm. And so, you know, I often share that, like, over that year I'd made $100,000 in my music and I'd spent hundred and ten. And, you know, that wasn't living extravagantly. Like when you think about touring around Australia with five people in your band, you're paying them, you're paying all of the engineers, you're paying flights, accommodation, hire cars, wages, um, you're paying for publicity, radio in every state. You know, like that money, and we weren't staying in like five star hotels. They're like bunk rooms in a backpackers. You know, like and I can testify. I can testify. She's, this lady's not a liar. This is the truth, right? Yeah. And so I realized that unless I started to look at it as a business and find out what other people were doing, I was going to not be able to do it anymore. And so, really, I managed my music was inviting other artists to come in and share about their experience. How have you done it? Mm. And this is the really sort of interesting but also very sad thing is that many of them were in debt. Mm. And if they weren't if they weren't in debt their managers were, which is the same thing. Mm. Because at the end of the day, as you know, we live in this massive continent. <gasps> you know, that's quite expensive long distances to travel with a relatively small population when you think about the landmass. So we're not even as big as the greater population of Tokyo. That's the whole of Australia. Wow. I think, like, many, many years of experience helped me to distill what I think are really important, very basic but important things. The first thing that I always say is, like, get a separate bank account. Now, I know that sounds insane to some people, But I just had one bank account and everything came in and everything went out of it. I wasn't, there was no business separation. Mm. So how can you have a business if you don't actually know what it's earning, what it's, what it's, you know, what the expenditures are? If you're not, there's no contingency plan or savings or knowing those outgoings that are going to happen every month or whatever it is. So that's the first thing that I did was I opened a separate bank account, which was Jen Chloe Music. And this was like, I don't know, 12 years ago. And then the next thing was don't go into debt. What? Crazy. Crazy. Easier said than done. Yeah. So I cut my credit card, except for those ones that you can have that are like debit credit cards. So you can't spend the bank's money. Mm. Cut it up. Oh, yeah. And because I now had this bank account, that was Jen Claw Music. If I wanted to go and make a record and I only had $3,000 and I wanted to spend six, I had to go out and find that money. Mm. And I couldn't borrow it from my partner or my friends or my family. And the beautiful thing is that it freed those relationships up. Oh, yeah. Because I wasn't scheming and manipulating and trying to work out how I could milk my parents for like 2000 Like tragic. That's mm. the kind of stuff we come to when we're desperate. So it freed those relationships up. 
And the other thing that I think is really, really, really important that I think a lot of people don't realise is like the most important people in your career as an artist are other artists. Mm. They're not managers. They're not booking agents. They're actually other artists. And the reason why is that that is the community that you will look to during the really tough times like COVID, Mm. you know, like those are the people that you can call up and commiserate with, you can collaborate with, Mm. that will lend you things because they know that it's tough, that Mm. will help you out, that will go on the road with you. Mm. They're actually the most important people in your life. And I think if you can get community and be involved with the community and not debt, Mm. they're foundational things that I think then help you to go out and actually have a crack at it and just be where you are. It's also being, you know, I think sometimes uh, artists want to be artists and not worry about the nuts and bolts of the things that put you together. But I just think you can get a bit interested and kind of excited about those bits too. Like I I had a $7,000 debt because of acting school and the fir- and one of the first things I got out of the blue in my first year out was a commercial for Sure and Natural Ultra Thin Maxi Shields pads. And it was a very fun ad actually. It was directed by a woman on film. It was quite an exciting couple of days, I won't lie. And it was a good little script and it had a bit of a laugh at itself. But I made uh, $10,000 and I was spending it in my own mind. I had it spent, Jen. I was going away. (laughs) And I had this accountant who said, you really should pay off that hex debt. And I'm like, really? Now, my parents weren't telling me this. This was the guy who was doing my tax and he said, okay, my best advice to you would be if you could not miss it, and you'll still have $3,000 to do something with. And it was the best advice ever because right from the beginning, as a struggling actor straight out of school, that debt was wiped. Yeah, look, I think, yeah, I mean, in the 10 years that I've been running I Manage My Music and I actually wrapped um, the last one we did was in November last year and it was for no shortage of people coming through the doors still. Wow. You know, like it was packed and and great speakers. Do you get different people to come in and talk to them? And and yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, I, I, I the series that I did during COVID were just online masterclasses, looking at one aspect of releasing music. Mm. And yeah, people people came in thick and fast. They were up for it. Does that that shows an energy though, doesn't it? That shows like people are hopeful and that people are, that makes me feel good that there are people who aren't going. I'm not going to let this beat me. I'm going to keep going and get out there and get some information because, you know, what's next? Who knows? I mean, look, you know, it was particularly it affected your you, your work and my work because I still tour with Rockwiz and we had two national tours that were cancelled two years running because mm. that is just run by Renegade and the people who originally made the show. There's no other money that helps out and there's just no way they could have covered anything like a border closure and having to accommodate a whole bunch of people. I Mm. I, I do feel slightly let down that there weren't more voices clamouring and saying, Mm. let's change this because Mm. I still think people think that making art, again, don't run away, come back, come back. I don't just mean things on the wall. I mean anything that you enjoy, you know, that it comes easily, that it's quick, Mm -hmm. that it's painless all of that, there's still a kind of a disconnect about that. And 
Look, mm. I'll bore anybody that that asks how we make the different shows I do just to clarify the the just the the misinformation they have about it. Yeah, look, I think it's you know, look, uh, if you said to me, "What does a chemical engineer do?" Honestly, mm. I wouldn't have the foggiest. Mm. So it's no surprise that people don't really understand the nuts and bolts of our industry. And mm. and really part of it, I guess part of the craft is to make it look easy, isn't it? So if it, looks, if it looks and feels easy, you're doing something right. Mm. What's next for you then, Jen? Like you, are, you know, you co-founded Milk Records uh, as a way to well, take back control really and and have your own label. And it's been such a success. It's so extraordinary. I manage my music, four albums, a fifth with the beautiful Liz Stringer and Mia Dyson. Whoa, I mean, I mean you, you're, you're just a, an incredible trio. What's mm. next? What's making you excited about the future? Because I, I must say I, I'm a fairly half-glass pool person and I was okay for most of COVID in many ways. I'm very lucky. I had a, a home and a partner mm. and and I didn't, and my, everyone was all right around me. Mm. Um, but just in the last couple of months I had a bit of a deep dive just thinking I don't know if anyone's really listening to anything. I think people have tuned out as to what's important and what's going on and just recently got optimistic again possibly because I've been back at work and I'm hanging with people who want to make things and are experts at what they do and experts, camera people and sound women and and directors and we're back in our good zone making good stuff for people. (laughs) So what's getting you hopefully a bit excited about what's next, whatever's next? Yeah, well, I mean, you know, similarly, I felt very, I think a lot of us really felt our good fortune and our privilege through COVID Um, in that, like yourself, you know, I had a really, I had secure housing. Mm. Um, I had financial assistance because I'd set up my business in a way that made um, JobKeeper accessible. And I was in a writing phase. So when I write, I generally stay home and and work. Um, So I was writing and demoing uh, and then between lockdowns would go and record. So I've recorded my fifth album and we're currently mixing it. And I'm so excited. Like I feel really creatively probably the most sort of open and free and excited about making music and performing. Mm. Um, I feel like I've really fallen in love with it in a new way. Wow. Like it, I, and I think it's because of that thing that I was saying, of like taking the time to understand more about who I am and where I come from mm. means that the way that I locate and situate myself in my music is much more meaningful. There's a connection there that I've never felt before mm. and it feels very powerful and embodied. And, he, like, I think there's a real healing in, in the music as well because of my own journey of, of reconnection and what, what I have to offer through, through that. So I've got all of these projects around the album at the moment. Some of it's making work back home in Aotearoa, hopefully in June if Omicron doesn't hobble us, Mm. um, connecting with other Māori 
who are making work um, and just generally artists in general, film projects, maybe a cheeky little podcast. Oh, um, I mean, I'll be listening. I'll be listening. Oh, look, why not? <laughs> and I love a yarn. I love Porero, so here we are. <laughs> but I feel really reinvigorated and excited about creating work and I just feel so fortunate, you mm. know, that I that I never stopped even when it's been tough. It's never been easy. Mm. You know, like I've always had to be there pushing it along. Mm. No one's ever kind of stepped in and gone, oh, here you go, Jen, you know, like we're going to do it all for you, just take a chill pill. Does anyone even say chill pill anymore? You do, just then. And I guess too, you know, (laughs) also I guess for artists too out there, you know, it's sort of remembering that I do remember one great thing about VCA, about acting school, was at the end of the three years they said, don't wait for people to call you for work. And it was very much a school about making your own work. They had had an actual course about it. So, But even as us actors, only actors in inverted commas, the idea was, you know, no one's going to offer you work, so you'll have to go and make it yourself. And what I love is, and can we finish on this final story, which is you'd been sitting there watching um, some lovely musicians do a version of the Beatles, uh, a Beatles show, and you thought, oh, yeah. And you thought, ah, oh, there must be, there must be uh, another uh, an album or some extraordinary female performer that we could do. Tell us about coming up with the idea and executing it. Yes, well, look, that was a beautiful moment in my life. Um, yes, having just watched another one of those kind of Beatles cover shows, doing the White Album, they always seem to do the White Album. Um, I was just like, this is so boring, and it's packed full of people paying good coin to watch this really boring presentation. Just going to be honest, it was middle of the road. And uh, and I was like, yeah, goddamn, I want to, you know, like what's a classic album by a woman? Like we need to like bring something to the stage that just isn't the same old Rolling Stones, Beatles, whatever it is. Love them, but whatever. And actually, do I love them? I actually don't love them that much. But, you know, it's like it's like going to the theatre companies again and going, are we really going to do Shakespeare again? Like, fine, but, I mean, could we just do something not Shakespeare? It's the, it's the classics, as it were, and they're classic because they're classic. I go, well, sometimes it's interesting to appreciate classics in opposition to something else or alongside yeah. something else or, you know, or maybe something else. <laughs> well, I just just as a side note, like a lot of people are like, oh, have you seen that Beatles documentary that goes for eight hours on Disney? Like you got to watch it. It's amazing. Blah, blah, blah. And I was like, okay. So I went and I was like, oh, if it's amazing, I must watch it. And I had many recommendations. I think I got through an hour of it. Mm. And it's not because I have some like, you know, problem with the Beatles I'm not like some jaded old person that hates the Beatles like I'm up for a good show but I was like literally just watching (laughs) like these four young dudes who were like the richest people in the world at that point in time who'd no longer toured because they didn't need to um smoking ciggies and having cocktails (laughs) delivered to them while they just wrote songs I'm like I write songs all the time I don't need to see other people do it and be waited on hand and foot while they do and yet there's a fascination for it 
So I go, well, you're all fascinated by the creative process. You're all fascinated about how it happens, but those guys were loaded and didn't have to be worried. Could you maybe be fascinated about others who are just as, who are struggling and are just as, want to get that talent going and unless they write it and can perform it and you can see it and you can have the relationship, you know, there's there's an audience for everyone and we just need to find them. Anyway. I hear you, Julia. I know the mission you're on and I fully am here for it. Thank you. Uh, So anyway, Beatles aside, uh, (laughs) I came home that night and I was like, I know, Patti Smith's horses. And then I looked on Google, I Googled it and I was like, no way, next year it turns 40 years. (gasps) I was like, perfect, 40-year commemoration of Patti Smith's The Horses I then assembled uh, Adelita, myself, Courtney Barnett, Gareth Lydiard of the Drones and Tropical Storm and <laughs> um, and a great band and we, we put on a couple of shows at the Melbourne Town Hall, which has that massive organ, mm. and I think we did a matinee and an evening show for Melbourne Festival and it. They both sold out. So it was like 4,000 people came through that afternoon to watch Patty Smith's horses. But the cutest thing was I got to meet Patty uh, when she was out playing her shows here for horses. Um, and it was maybe like a year later in 2017, I think, because we did it in 2016. And uh, her, her tour manager came and got myself Courtney. <gasps> We walked down like all through the little halls behind the art centre. And kind of on the way, I was like, oh my God, I'm about to meet Patty Smith. Like, that's really something, you know, like I feel a bit nervous. Mm. I thought we were just going to be like in your backstage green room, everyone having a few drinks. Hey, Patty, here's Jen and Courtney. Oh, hi, how are you going? Love your work. And then you go and, I don't know, Bye-bye. grab a drink, and, you know? <laughs> yeah. But we come to this stage door opens the door to this uh, wardrobe room or whatever, what do you call it, change room, and Patty's just there, Mm. just sitting there. Of course she is. She's just performed horses on her own. Like we did it with like six performers. And we we just had an audience with Patty Smith for like (gasps) 20 minutes or something, just myself, Courtney and Patty. And, you know, like, what do you say? I was just like, oh, thanks so much for riding horses. <laughs> but then she was like, oh, yeah, that was great. You know, some friends sent me some videos of y'all <gasps> doing it and, uh, yeah, good stuff. Oh, she saw some of it. She saw some of it. Oh, my. And she God. loved it. Oh, my God. She gave it the thumbs up. Patty gave uh, our production of horses the thumbs up. So that Is- was a super cute moment. It's like um, it's a bit like the Kevin Jackson moment too where you like you have this experience and they come back to go, I witnessed it and saw it. You know, it's a real, I wish wish audiences too realise how much belief it takes to be a performer, a belief that you keep moving forward and you keep finding new things and every now and then something just works and you savour it, you really savour it and you remember it and it becomes this terrific memory that you'll think about when you're 80 and you can't move anymore and it'll be this time. And COVID reminded me of that. I just thought COVID felt like this is what retirement is. I've got to make more memories. I've got to make more memories for others. I want to make sure, do you know what I mean? Like at least I had something to think about while we were stuck and going, well, if I never tour again, I remember that great time when we did this and that. I guess too what I love about that 
horse's story, I, I know I've heard you speak about because you had an acting background and you sing as well, there was a moment where the two of them came together and when you performed in that show and you really felt like the two streams connected and that's such a magic thing to happen for a performer when you go, oh, I do have this extra stuff in my kit that yeah. is like performing a monologue. I mean, and I mean, that's so Patty. I mean, that's that she absolutely oh, is what she does. And so theatrical and so powerful. theatrical. But here's the thing as well. I mean, I think it was said, you know, many times over, you know, COVID of the past two years, we're still in it. Is what did we turn to? Oh, yeah. You know, aside from yeah. food, alcohol, and our pets, <laughs> we turned to literature, poetry, um, beautiful film and television, um, music, podcasts. Like mm. we turned to culture mm. to fill the cup, you mm. know, when we couldn't be living, you know, that bigger sort of out, out in the world life. Mm. And so even if we might like to think that we don't value culture, we do. Mm, it's absolutely. embedded, mm. you know, it's embedded in our very souls. Like everyone looks to it, whether they know it or not, to connect with the truth of who they are. <laughs> Jen, uh, onwards and upwards, so good to talk to you. And, um, and uh, I can't wait to hear the next album. It's coming. So great to hear from Jen. Sometimes it is good to meet your heroes. What up, what up? Jay-Z asks who cares. It's your boy, Jay-Z. Make some noise. Not bad, Jay-Z. Julia Zemiro. This is Julia Zemiro asks who cares. Our second guest is Astrid Jurgensen. She is an Australian vocalist, conductor and composer and she's the founder and director of Pub Choir. She radiates intelligence and creativity and simply wants every one of us to get creative too. Hello, Astrid. Julia, I'm obsessed with you. Jay-Z. Are you doing? The real Jay-Z. Yeah, I mean the original Jay-Z, obviously. Astrid, so delighted to be talking to you. You blew my tiny mind when I saw you do Pub Choir and when I was the Artistic Director of the Adelaide Cabaret Festival, you were the first thing on the list of what we wanted to get because of what you do. For those people who don't know about Pub Choir, tell us, what is it? Pub Choir is essentially what it says on the box. It's people singing together at the pub, nice and rowdy and fun. But on another level, Trent Dalton, the wonderful Brisbane author, said to me once of his experience of coming to pub choir and experience it himself, said that it is the sound of people agreeing, which I think is such a beautiful way to describe any choir. It is just regular people who might not know each other at all, who might disagree with each other on so many facets of life, all coming together and sharing one singular goal for an evening. And that's what pub choir is. We learn one song at the show. You don't have to prepare anything. You don't have to be good at singing. You can be truly awful, but you get to come along and we will carry each other in the crowd. And at the end of the show, we perform what we have learned for each other. It sounds very cerebral, but it's mostly me insulting a crowd of people (laughs) and yelling at them. But it's fun. It's awesome. It's wonderful. That's a beautiful description. What I love, of course, is that Astrid, you had your first singing lesson and you were so excited by the tools that you were given in that first lesson to go, oh, right, you got excited, you wanted to share that with other people, you went teaching and it didn't quite go as you thought. 
Look, I retired quite quickly from teaching. <laughs> it was a short, not illustrious career um, of one year. <laughs> I, I tried high school teaching because I found music lessons like magic. Mm. I had always been good at music. Like as, uh, as long as I can remember, I've been able to hear songs with a lot of detail in my head. And I thought that was something everyone could do, but it turns out not. So I thought I'll go get some lessons. When I was 16, I had some singing lessons and I thought it was like learning a spell. Like you can use your body. You don't even have to buy anything. You just use Mm. your body. Your voice has lived there all along. And if you use it in the right way, you can make people feel complex emotions like Mm. you genuinely feel like you're casting a spell over people just by kind of speaking at them Mm. (laughs) um and so I thought it was like the most illuminating experience of my life that you can control this instrument it's not just like this wild beast and either it's good or it's not you can actually learn to harness your voice and I thought well surely everybody will be as excited as me when I explain this to them but it turns out that um high school children were not <laughs> um, I tried. I gave it my all, um, but I think I'm I'm far too chaotic for the classroom. So I kind of retreated, and I really started to focus on singing in the community. Community choir stuff really got me going. And I mean, at one point, you were organising seven different choirs, driving hundreds of kilometres to facilitate that. But something kind of kicked in again with that a little bit. It was like, hang on. It's a lot of uh, kids still, I'm teaching a lot of kids who still sometimes don't want to be there even though they're good at it Um, and sometimes a lot of white people, which was great, and you you come from a completely different background and and you were thinking, hmm. Well, I mean, I guess the the realisation I had was, yes, it's incredible to share this magic with people about singing, but... Yeah, the populations that I was working with didn't reflect me. Mm. It's not that there's anything wrong with any of those things you've mentioned, but, I mean, I um, come from a a diverse background. I was 20 years old, this young, um, energetic female, and I was walking into what kind of felt like retirement situations where um, it, it was confusing to me because I think that choir is the most wonderful, accessible equalizing experience that is so easy like Mm. I think it's really become this very cerebral highbrow thing and we sing these like you know difficult works from the past but actually choir is just as Trent said people agreeing and I really wanted to find a way to convince people like me that it was worth doing Um, and so that's how pub choir was born because I was like what attracts young people that want to just have a good time well obviously alcohol (laughs) I'm not sponsored I'm not not (laughs) suggesting anything but it just turns out if you take the choir rehearsal that's been happening the whole time but you just put it in a nice fun licensed venue so people will come the original social media post you put out read calling all shower singers pub choir is a choir for you bring your mates bring your nan just don't bring your kids because it's a pub no sheet music no auditions no solos no commitment, no worries. We'll teach you one song in three-part harmony in 90 minutes and then we'll never do it again. Come and let out some yells, $5 entry. Now, look, that is one of the best bloody ins I've ever read. Like you just want to go. And the most beautiful part is we'll never do it again. It's this moment in time. It's not about keeping it. And even though you do film it so people can have it as something to watch later, of course, they put their phones away and they completely get into what you're doing. Now, when I first saw it and was part of it, I thought it was just going to be 
everyone just singing everything. But no, you you actually do teach a three-part harmony and it's like you kind of teach up rather than teach down. You sort of go, I, I'm going to challenge you a little bit. And you can see people, well, you tell me, you can see people sometimes, are, are they get, do they get frustrated? Does the penny drop? I think it's more of a, a doubt. It's like the road to Damascus. <laughs> Everyone <laughs> comes along and they do not believe and I yell at them until they do, you know. <laughs> I think um, like, I mean, a big part of it is that it's honest. So I think a lot of people who come along know that they sing out of tune. There's no point in me like, cajoling them and lying to them. We don't need leaders to lie to us. The Any truth more is much than they quicker. already do. That's right. We have, yeah, we're full. Couldn't receive another lie. Thank you. Um, and so we 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 crave honesty. And the people that come along, they know themselves. I don't hear anyone's individual voice, but everyone who comes along. Mm has an understanding of what their voice is like. And for a lot of people, they don't want you to tell them, and so beautiful, you've nailed it, because they probably haven't. They've mm. probably missed every note along the way, came in late, too high, too sharp, and missed everything. But what I do at Pub Choir is I try and just be honest with them, but optimistic. I mm. think I think those are my two main kind of goals for the evening. I will be honest with the people there. I'll say, well, you've absolutely missed every note, <laughs> but thank you for being honest about it because now I can help you. Mm-hmm. I mean, I say all the time at the show, if you just step back and wait for the time where you have come to a perfect understanding of what you need to do, you will have missed the whole show. It would be much more efficient use of your time if you just sang what you think you should be singing and if it goes wrong, I'll help you. I'll let you know. (laughs) And then we go from there and we all go on this journey together and we arrive at a destination together as long as it starts from a place of honesty and optimism because I believe in them. It's it's a metaphor for living your bloody life as well because it's diving in and it's, it's also permission to fail and permission to make a weird sound and permission to try again. And because you rehearse it a few times, you get another go at it. Like it's not the end all and be all. Now, Performers might know that already. We know that's part of how we learn and all that. But all these people are not performers in general. And the look on people's faces when they leave, the sound that you actually get them to make, I mean, I just tear up every time. It's just I just can't go there. (laughs) I can't go there if I've got to do anything important afterwards because I just get so... Uh, it's so beautifully emotional. And as you say, normally often choirs are about the right sound and there is no right sound. It's about making the sound together and, as as Trent says, agreeing. When I was at acting school at VCA, we didn't do a lot of singing. It was part of the curriculum but there wasn't a lot of it. And at one point she did divide the class into two and you were going, oh, which half am I in? And I realised I was in the better half, which was no you. fun for the half for the other half, you know. So they felt like they were kind of not great at it and we got stuff that was more challenging, but there were good singers in this particular year, so why not challenge them? But what she really meant to say too before she divided was that she didn't believe that every singer could act, but she felt that every actor could sing and could communicate a song by acting, by feeling, by telling the story of it. And let's face it, you know, if we all judged every musician by the voice and Australian Idol standards, there would be no Tom Waits, there'd be no Dylan, there'd be no scratchy voices and interesting voices. And Yeah. I mean, I think that the music is 
confusing in that way and very challenging in that way because input does not necessarily equal output. Mm. You know, you could you could do everything technically correct, but that doesn't mean that your voice moves people. Mm. And you could miss most of the notes and have a really gravelly voice, and yet something is awakened in the people that listen to you. So it is, I'm absolutely sick of artistic pursuit being presented as a, like there's an end point. There is no finishing point to art. You cannot complete music. <laughs> you can't go and study it and they'll be like, well, I've done it all. I'll I move finished. On. Like, there's, no, there's no line. Mm. It just goes on and on and it, all of it is subjective and I'm sick of this judgment, this laden with judgment idea about the arts. You know, your voice might be out of tune all of the time, but that's that's a subjective criteria, you know, and I just think, the the one fact about voices is that every single one is unique to the user. Like, you know, you can buy pianos from the factory, but you can't buy a voice. Mm. Every single one is unique to the user and that's worth celebrating, even if it sucks, even if all of the notes are wrong. <laughs> the New Platform Papers is a great volume of stories about arts and what's going on. And this particular one is what future for the arts in the post-pandemic world. Indeed. And in it, you write, we all deserve to feel joy, even if we are not the best. Is that the mantra when you, when you look out onto that crowd, when you're filling up a huge room of, you know, up to, I mean, I've got it here, 3,000 people you did truly madly deeply, that great Savage Garden song. 3,000 people, that must have been awesome. Yeah, well, think about the odds, though, like 3,000 regular people, there's no auditions, as if all of them are going to be good. Mm. I mean, as if any of us are the best at anything. Yeah. I mean, really, let's be honest about it. There's billions of people in the world. The odds are not good for you, you know, to be the best at anything. We all (laughs) exist in this vast average, you know. Like the sooner you can accept that, the reality of that, <laughs> letting go of the idea that we are striving to climb this mm. heap of shit, yeah. you know, like it, there's there's just the odds are so poor. Mm. They're, they're against us. And so I feel like the moment that you can accept that we exist in this vast average is so freeing. Mm. So you are free now to enjoy an experience. Of course you're not the best. <laughs> of course. <laughs> Like when you sing, you are not the most beautiful sound in the world and that's okay. Like, you know, I get a lot of people who come along before the show, before they've had their conversion and they say things like, you know, oh, I'm absolutely tone deaf. I could never sing a note right and I know there's no hope for me. And I sort of think to myself, what are you making that, basing that comparison on? Are you listening to literal famous singers Mm -hmm. and then deciding that there is a chasm between you and them. Of course, like, you know, Beyonce wouldn't exist unless she was remarkable. And to Mm -hmm. compare our voice with what we hear, what this curated sound that we hear everywhere on the radio and like, you know, after the producer has ironed everything out and after everything is so schmick and clean and then to listen to that and think, oh, my voice isn't that good. I mean, of course it's not. Come on, get off your horse, you're crazy. You know, like, you know, just accept that your voice is unique and that is enough. You make the comparison with sport where you say, you know, we know that we can't be, we're not going to be at the Olympics, so that doesn't stop us playing soccer on the weekend with friends. It doesn't stop us playing tennis with friends. It doesn't stop us doing a bit of a dance class and not being great at it, but you just love doing it. With singing somehow, is it because it's emotional? Is it because it taps it? Because someone in someone in the family has obviously said to them, you can't sing. I hear that all the time. Oh, Because with Rock Wiz, we just do some singing sometimes and we challenge them and they're like, oh, no, no, I'm the one in my family who can't sing. 
But is it because singing is emotional too? It's it other activities don't bring out emotion like that, maybe. There's probably lots of factors for each individual, but I reckon overall, I think singing feels like a personal failure because it came from your body. <laughs> you know, with um, I, I also learned violin and piano as a young kid and you press keys and you um, look at the string and, you you know, you can see physically what you're working with. With singing, it's all internal. It's very personal. And so when things go wrong, you did it. <laughs> you know, yeah. you made the noise. And so it feels like such a personal failure. But I mean, I would counter that by saying that much like sport, singing is a physical activity. I mean, I wish it was more physical, <laughs> just yes. personally speaking. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> but I mean, um, it's a physical activity as in if there's anything about your voice that you're embarrassed about or that you don't like, there is a physical solution because all noise is created with your own body. So, you know, if your voice you feel is too annoying, you know, you can learn to change tone of a mm. voice. So I'm not suggesting that you do that, but this idea that it's like this fixed property of our bodies is not true. And, you know, I think sport does a lot better of a job of convincing society that it's okay to be average. You know, like anyone at any physical level can find like a little kicks AFL team or a, a, a night indoor netball team and you can be the worst and super uncoordinated and someone will have you but what do you do if you're really bad at violin you know like yeah. where do you go yeah. <laughs> I think yeah the arts has this this problem with kind of prestige and competition whereas I think you know pub choir at least I mean I, I'm not trying to make it a big self-promotion thing but I think we have given people a space to be truly awful and to have the loveliest time because mm. it is okay if there are enough of us helping each other we can celebrate the vast average. And, and I think that's what people want in a post-COVID world. Like I think all of us have spent a lot of time at home reflecting on what is actually important. And I think comfort and happiness have really risen to the top. You know, mm. I've noticed some of my corporate friends, they're like, they're not interested in wearing heels and a power suit to work. The way that we look has nothing to do with our performance. Mm. You know, like people are looking to work at home and they're brushing their hair less even though there's a Zoom meeting and they've got a kid on the hip and we are looking for comfort and we are looking for experience and I think anything we can do to offer people that, especially in the arts, you know, bring it on. I know. It's our job. Now, you are an artist. You had a, you were making a, quite a good living, I'm assuming, with Pub Choir. You were doing incredible shows, so many extraordinary people involved along the way. You know, Mariah Carey got involved at one point and said how fabulous it was. It was going all around the world. And then COVID hits. Now, any of us that work with a live audience, all of a sudden that work literally disappeared. How did it play out for you? Well, it was it was a couple of touch and go brown moments there, but <laughs> I think do, do you know what is incredible? And I do not take this for granted. I understand that this is not everyone's story, and in fact, I think it's the exception. Is that we thrived throughout COVID, which is unbelievable considering that choir was often illegal <laughs> during the last two years. Yeah. It has, like my business has been illegal. And um, unsafe, unsafe. Yeah, it's so unsafe. You know, you can cheer at the footy, but once it's a song, you know, those particles. So anyway, uh, what actually happened was I reflected deep, more deeply upon what pub choir was about anyway. So, yes, it was going very well, and I do grieve some of those opportunities that I think we might have lost forever perhaps, but I had 
plenty of time for introspection and to consider what it is that I'm trying to do anyway. Was it to fill a pub with thousands of people? No, that's not what started Pub Quiet to begin with. The idea was offering people the opportunity to make art averagely and to feel safe and to enjoy the experience. And I don't, I I came to the realisation that we didn't even need to be near each other. We could still have that experience and that's how Couch Choir was created. It's the same idea, you know, everyone is invited, no matter what your voice is like, you are invited to come and be part of this experience. But rather than it being live, people would send their performances as a video to me and my team and we would edit them together. And I think that that is extraordinarily brave of all the people yes. who are a part of it because at, at pub choir you just get lost in the crowd. Just go stand near a very loud person and then <laughs> blend in. You know, they'll, they'll cover any noise you make. But at couch choir you send your individual performance to us. And what happened was our business grew because, wow. like I was saying before, I think of all of the terrible things that have happened in the t- past two years, one silver lining is that I think COVID has helped us all to reframe what we consider important. And I think people were sitting at home and they wanted connection. They wanted to feel like part of something bigger than themselves. Community is important to us. We have all agreed community is important. And I think people also felt this desperate need to feel okay with what they have. And we'd already been offering that with Pub Choir, but with Couch Choir, it was an even more overt decision for people to make. I will sing by myself and I may miss every single note and then I will accept that and I will send it to someone else and I trust that they will do something good with it. And so our our audience literally doubled over, over the last little while. Um, and, and so I'm very grateful for this... I don't know. I guess it's kind of reiterated for me why we started in the first place, which was, yeah, to give people a safe place to create and singing is still real. No matter what infectious thing might be going on in the world, singing always is with you inside your body and you can cast the magic spell anytime you want. Oh, I love it. I love listening to you, Astrid. It just... I mean, honestly, um, I would just really encourage anybody, if you've never had singing lessons, just book a teacher for six lessons, just for six, and just see what what you feel and what comes out of it. And there are some amazing teachers out there. There really, really, really are. Um, it's so It's so worth doing. So I have to say, though, when COVID hit and we had a lot of time to think about all of these things and... Um, JobKeeper came out and all of a sudden it seemed that the artistic community wasn't going to be able to get any of that and, again, maybe with the flick of a pen we could have uh, have that changed. I was surprised how well, I expected more members of the public or punters to kind of go, yeah, that's terrible, and they did a bit online, et cetera, but there's no real change to that upheaval. Or maybe there was. Maybe more people spoke up than I knew, but nothing was really done about it. And, again, it was very difficult for the artistic community not to feel completely ignored and unheard and unnecessary until you need cheering up, until you need to commute, to communicate with someone, until you need some amazing music at your, you want to get a band in and do something. And I'd be interested to know what your view is of that in terms of what are we, I think sometimes maybe we are not as good at explaining and sharing with audiences what it is that we do, the work that it takes, and to maybe stop that idea of going, well, you're lucky, that's why you do it. 
I find that you kind of cross this nice um, divide between you are a professional musician and singer, mm. but you engage people who are not and you make a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful thing. I mean, my approach is the more that you can invite people into the experience, the more appreciation that they have for what it involves. So, I mean, say with sport, I had tennis lessons very briefly <laughs> as a kid and I was actually beaten in my only match I ever played with a, by a girl with one arm and, I was, you know, thrashed, six love. <laughs> and I thought to myself, tennis is so hard. But then when I go and watch tennis on the telly, I have this um, this understanding of, of how difficult it would be to be Ash Barty, mm. like how much skill is involved. And until we in the arts community offer people the experience of music making, in my instance, they may not be able to come to a place of appreciation of how much it involves to become a master of your craft, Mm. Um, to go and see an incredible musician and to understand that this is not just the way that they work up, but it actually takes considerable effort and practice um, to get to that place. And I think, yeah, we do quite a notoriously bad job of this grassroots creation. And it's interesting, you like when when we bring into the the COVID conversation of, you know, we we felt like we were adrift in the arts community and like we weren't sure if we were truly appreciated. I think that there is a lot of passiveness around the consuming of art and the internet has everything to do with that and you know I think that live music is a much richer experience than listening on your phone but you can access music anytime you want you know Mm. like art is at our fingertips pretty much for free at all times and so it has to be about the experience if we want to convince people of the value of what art brings into our life it has to be experiential Mm. Um, because we can passively consume art all day, every day, as much as we want. And so I think out of something like COVID, if we want to get people back in theatres and experiencing the transformation that you have as an audience member when you are taken on this journey, when you watch a play or whatever, I think we need to start encouraging the wider community to experience art in their everyday lives. Now, that might be, I don't know, if you're in a corporate industry, maybe you could have Instead of awkward PD where everyone sits there checking their phone secretly and we talk about, I don't know, like buzzwords and circling oh back God. and stuff, maybe you could have a group art class. Mm. Now, that might sound really silly and wishy-washy, but the research is abundant and readily available. Go look up how um, singing can affect you physically and mm. emotionally. Like there's so much research out there. I think that we need to start bringing the arts into the experience of life so that people can dip their fingers in creation. We need to create with some urgency in this world because then we will understand what it takes to really truly transform people with art. It's it's hard work and we've got to bring people on that journey, you know. I sometimes joke that one day when I've got no work uh, and I'm 65, I'll open a, like a, a, a drama class school but but we'll go. yeah I know but it'll be called please come here if you don't want to be famous and it would be just for the experience mm. of 
and there could be adults and children to come and go, try doing a monologue from a play, try singing something, try learning something, not to be um, marked on, not to be rewarded by, but just to try it in a safe environment. And I also think that's the way you get to learn the vocabulary of a particular uh, genre. You said before with tennis, you had played tennis and you saw how hard it was. So when you watch it, you have some idea. And I think if every kid, you know how at school so early we have to start choosing what we're going to do, if we're going to do a language or if we're going to do a music or if we're going to do sport. And then at some point too, unless you're brilliant at it, you're out. Mm-hmm. It's really hard to be average. And then you're you're told you're average because the expectation is everyone wants to be brilliant. We don't. I'd like to play a really average game of netball, but we tried that once and the girls we were up, the women we were up against, you know, I did some adult netball classes. We turned up in just our gear and that team had said, yeah, no, you don't have to wear anything special. And we were up against this team with bibs and the whole thing's organised. They've got uniforms. I was like, what is this? And they were not friendly. (laughs) They did not want to have fun. And so that fun element of being at school, and I think kids should sing every single day at school for fun. You do a song that is popular. You do a song that you'd enjoy, not for marks, just to open your guts up and yell and sing and make noise because that vibration inside you, it's just good for you to do that for an hour and then get on with your day. Absolutely. And a very small story, just the direct precursor to pub choir the, the direct year before I started pub choir, I was working in Townsville at a school called St. Pat's um, on the Strand and they had a compulsory whole school choir. I was brought into the school specifically to run the <gasps> fortnightly compulsory Astrid, whole school I love choir. It. In high school, high school girls being forced to sit outside in Townsville. It's hot there if you haven't been. Right after assembly, so they've been sitting in the heat sweltering, sweating from every pore, and then after assembly they remain, sit in their sweaty seats and then are forced to sing with me for an hour. And can I tell you, it was the most transformative, incredible, illuminating experience of my life. I thank my lucky stars that I was given the opportunity to do that kind of work. Within the first session, I mean, the doubt, the, the, the doubt was high. The hormones were absolutely pumping. <laughs> there was just this like sticky sweat of fear <laughs> in the air and it was mostly from me. And I decided I would not try and explain anything. And exactly what I was saying before, I decided I have to go experience first. So instead of saying anything, welcome to quiet. No, I just started singing my guts out, a song that I wanted them to learn, but I let them hear it. I, I decided that. I couldn't ask them to do anything I wouldn't be willing to do. So I just put my face in the microphone <gasps> and I sang this song as like beautifully as I possibly could. And then I pointed back at them and I said, now you sing it. And we did it line by line and everyone shut their face <laughs> and then sang what I told them to. And so the experience is always, it has mm. to come first. Mm. Let's worry about, oh, how to take a beautiful breath and sit this way and do that. No, let's worry about that later. And let's just start with a beautiful feeling of singing together. And then from there we could, you know, I'd bring a new pop song every week. And it was pretty much pub choir but sober. 
thank goodness it was in a school. Um, <laughs> and yeah, just like taking a song that I thought they already knew. So they felt like they had already succeeded because they knew how it all went. But I'd sing first, they'd sing back. And I'm like, well, this side, try a little harmony. And then we'd oh. make stuff together. And it was incredible. And it just showed me my whole perception of creating and the arts had been wrong. It's not about competing. There is no way to win. All we can do is work together. And the sum is always greater than the parts. If you have honest and optimistic leadership. I think that's an important element to it. You can't just flounder. (laughs) Someone has to be telling someone what to do. (laughs) You say in this great piece, again, the new platform papers, get it, to join a choir is to agree to play a small part in a collective whole. You give of yourself, not for yourself, so that you may share in an outcome much bigger than yourself. I mean, isn't that that how we should be voting? Isn't that how we should be um, living? Isn't that how we should be being like together like that's that's the fun part of it isn't it that's why we're all here isn't it I mean I like to think so and I mean if I I've heard that there's a parliamentary choir and Is there? I would be willing if you pulled my leg <laughs> I'd be willing to go and take the parliamentary choir because I would love to boss around some politicians with some honest but optimistic leadership and say, no, if we work together, we could actually agree and create something better than we could, you know, create by ourselves. I mean, I think that's pretty um, uh, megalomaniac vibes from me. But, (laughs) I mean, I think it would be be really nice to even have that um, literal politicians working in literal harmony together. Wouldn't that be nice? That would be, that's my dream. That's literally my dream. I'm putting it out there. Anyone who's in the parliamentary choir, I'm available. She's available. (laughs) And also let's shout out, let's have more uh, compulsory whole school choirs. Oh, my gosh. I think that it was an experience for them as well as me and I, you know, we could do with a lot more of that in schools and in society in general. Let's make stuff averagely and have a lovely time. Let's make stuff averagely and have a lovely time. Astrid, you're just a ray of sunshine and I also want to uh, shout out to wonderful Waveney Yasso who works with you and plays guitar and uh, gets us all smiling and getting into it and gives us a a hand with the tune because sometimes you don't know where we're going. Um, She will absolutely be listening and I bet you she's wearing the custom-made Julie Zamiro shirt that she had. (laughs) Yeah. You and her hug and she got it printed so that it would last longer, the feeling. So thank you for being so lovely and supportive to, to everything we do. Thank you. And it was a thrill also that SBS made a show around Pub Choir and specifically they made it around the fact that choirs hadn't been able to get together and we cut to different, I hosted it with Miranda Tapsell for SBS and we cut to different choirs all around the country um, to check in with them in terms of what they'd been doing and you, again, taught with Waveney live at the Sydney Town Hall uh, a, a song, Hunters and Collectors song with Mark Seymour and it was incredible and, um, yeah, I just, I hope we get to do it again. I hope we get to see that vibe again and 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 get out there. Have you done any live since? So we've done one show in 2022 and it was incredible. Um, we did the song I Love You Always Forever. We did it in Brisbane. <gasps> this beautiful song by UK singer Donna Lewis. I love you always forever. Yes. And she got on board. No. She's been tweeting about it. She's been sharing it. Oh. And um, 
you know, I think even that's that's very good feedback. It's very validating to see the artists themselves be excited by a song of their own being reborn, sung by, you know, drunk just people. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know who they are. Uh, so, you know, if you can't get along to pub choir, join a local choir. Go and make a friend. Go and agree with someone. Yeah. Go and sing a song and make something with them and you will be better for it, I promise. Thank you so much, Astrid. Love you. Love you. Oh, you are a life-affirming delight. <laughs> Thank you for having me. Julia Zemiro asks, who cares? So that's the message, everyone. Sing averagely. Go on. I dare you. Thank you to Jen and Astrid. Thanks to Irrational Fear and their Patreon supporters, the Bertha Foundation, and our wonderful post-producer, Jacob Round, who makes us sound fabulous on Equipment from Road. Join me next time when we find out who else cares. Bye. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.